You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Percutaneous coronary intervention. Are we doing too many procedures? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. Elizabeth Holper. Dr. Holper is the Associate Professor of Medicine in Cardiology. She's the Director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at Parkland Health and Hospital Systems at UT Southwestern. She's an interventional cardiologist who is an expert in helping us understand the use of these procedures in our patients. Dr. Holper, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Sorrentino. Let's talk first about the indications for coronary angiography. And the group of patients I'd like to talk about are the stable chronic patient. I think we all understand that uh, we want to do everything we can to treat an acute myocardial infarction. But what about the stable patient? What would be an indication for taking them to the lab? The current indications, as outlined by the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association, has been for the stable patient who has angina, for example, with doing activities during their daily life, that if that those symptoms are not able to be managed by medical therapy, that an alternative procedure such as coronary angiography and, and percutaneous coronary intervention can be considered at that point. So it sounds like symptoms should be the driving factor as to who should go to the lab? That has traditionally been the case for the majority of patients The problem does arise in certain subsets of patients where this gets a little bit more difficult to assess. For example, in patients with diabetes mellitus who don't often have traditional symptoms of angina that other patients may have. The guidelines in those patients are a little bit different. For example, the American Diabetes Association has recommended routine screening with stress tests in these patients. However, then that gets a little challenging when such a patient comes to the cath lab. For example, how to proceed as far as intervention in a patient with a significant coronary lesion but who doesn't have traditional symptoms becomes one in which you need to decide on on an individual patient basis. Can we use ischemic markers as a reason to go to the cath lab? For example, in that diabetic patient who might not have chest pain, is there a degree or a level of ischemia that would promote uh, moving forward? Yes, and that's where other types of non-invasive testing can help us. Situations or clinical scenarios that would make us push forward to consider a catheterization or angioplasty would be the patient who, for example, has a reduction in their left ventricular ejection fraction or the pumping function of the left ventricle of the heart, or a patient who has a large degree of ischemia on their stress test. For example, multiple territories of the heart muscle that appear to have uh, abnormal blood flow. So those types of situations are one in which we can proceed forward when the patient may not have the classic symptoms. Now, what about some of the new imaging techniques, such as calcium scoring and uh, CT angiography? Is there any results from these tests that would then lead to going directly to the cardiac catheterization laboratory? The issue currently is that gets a little bit difficult, currently because we don't have a lot of good data. We also know that if you have a higher degree of calcium in your coronary arteries, that you are more likely to have an obstructive lesion or a lesion blocking one of the coronary arteries. The issue is that then when we try to tie that to whether if we use that data to do an angiography to place a stent and open that artery up, then to follow and to show that that actually has a reduction in clinical events down the road, that type of data isn't yet available for us. 
So we really probably need a few more years to be able to to tie those pieces of data together. I think we will have them shortly, but thus far we don't have a lot of good information on that. So as of yet, coronary CT scanning isn't yet a recommended therapy for the non-invasive evaluation of patients for coronary artery disease. So once you have the patient in the laboratory and we've done the diagnostic angiography, how do you decide when an intervention is warranted? Well, we decided based on on two things. One is on the clinical symptoms and clinical parameters of the patient. For example, do they have symptoms or do they have a large burden of ischemia or abnormal blood flow on their non-invasive testing? The second is on the angiographic parameters that we see when we take the pictures. For example, does there appear to be a lesion that would go along with the symptoms of the patient or that would go along with abnormal blood flow based on the non-invasive testing of the patient? Once you have a patient in the cardiac catheterization laboratory and you've identified a lesion, we have a lot of different techniques that are available to open up that lesion, balloons and stents. How do you decide uh, which technique to use, or does everybody now who needs an intervention get a stent? That's actually a very good question, Matt, because as of a year and a half or two years ago, the answer to that question absolutely would have been every patient who needs an intervention should have a stent placed because the data suggested that the artery was more likely to stay open, to have less narrowing, to have less development of a blood clot if the patient had a stent placed as compared to just having a balloon angioplasty alone without a stent placed after the ballooning was done. In the past year and a half, the data behind the use of drug-eluting stents have shown that there is a potential risk of of a slightly higher episode of developing a blood clot in the artery delayed much further beyond the when the procedure was done beyond a year time frame after the intervention. And that, therefore, has led to people readdressing the situation of, do we need to start talking about whether every patient actually should have a stent placed, or should we actually start readdressing the question of whether patients, we really need to talk more about not just should be, there be a balloon or stent, but should we really be bringing back to the table should patients with multiple blockages in the arteries really be considered more for a bypass operation as opposed to an angioplasty and intervention? You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and my guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Holper, and we are discussing the indications for percutaneous coronary interventions. Dr. Holper, I'd like to talk a little bit about the success rate now. Uh, how successful are we in opening up these uh, serious uh, narrowings and keeping them open once they have been treated with either a balloon or a stent? Well, the issue of actually being able to successfully open arteries at the time of the procedure with current technologies and in the majority of patients, our success rates for standard blockages that aren't complete blockages or a subset of our highly complex lesions is really on the order of 98 to 99%. So if you have a 70% blockage in your right coronary artery, my likelihood of being able to easily open that artery, place a stent, and that you'd be able to go home within a, within a day after that procedure is, is very close to 100%. The issue where it becomes a little bit different is when we talk about how successful we are at keeping the artery open, as you asked. The answer to that question depends on really whether we we use what's called a bare metal stent in that patient, a stent that isn't coated with one of our drugs that can reduce the rate of re-narrowing versus our drug-eluting stents that do have this medication coated on the stent. 
And when we look at our bare metal stents without that drug coating, in general, if we look at all comers, the rate of re-narrowing in that stent, which traditionally happens in the first six months to 12 months after that stent is placed, for all comers, if we look at all lesions or all blockages, is about 15 to 20%, meaning that about 15% to 20% of those patients may need to come back in for another angioplasty or may have recurrence of their symptoms after the intervention. When we look, however, at patients who have a drug-eluting stent placed in a similar coronary artery, such as patients studied in, in multiple clinical trials, we see that the reduction rate in, those, in that same indication, patients who need to come back for an intervention, is about 50% less. So we really look at less than a 10% of those patients, again, with the more not-so-difficult type lesions, needing to come back in for an intervention, meaning that upwards of 90% of those patients can be successfully treated and not need to have another future intervention in that, in that area that was treated. Let's talk about the success rate from a more clinical point of view as well. Uh, since most patients who get an intervention are coming to the lab because they're having symptoms of angina or chest pain, how well can we reduce the angina? And even more importantly, can we get to the point where patients can be taken off of medications for their angina? That's actually a very, very good question. And and that actually has, has most recently been looked at and presented at this year's American College of Cardiology meeting in the COURAGE study, which looked at randomizing or, or placing patients either in patients, patients, again, who had stable angina to either have an angioplasty done or to have optimal medical therapy to really reduce their symptoms of angina, and then clinical follow-up was done. And while the results of this trial really weren't so, weren't so surprising, what was found in this study was that angioplasty, which none of us ever actually thought it did in stable angina, didn't necessarily reduce death or myocardial infarction rates in these patients. Again, that's the part that wasn't so surprising in this study. We, never, we actually hadn't thought that it would. None of the data in the past 20 years has ever suggested in that category of patients that it would. But what was interesting on the study, and I think you know, makes us stop and think a little bit, is that in the optimal medical arm of the patients, that, that patients actually did pretty well. The one thing that differed between the two groups was the degree of angina was higher in the patients on the optimal medical therapy arm. What that tells us in general is that optimal medical therapy does pretty well. It can make you live just as long as if we do an angioplasty. You don't have a higher rate of, of a heart attack or of dying. However, you may have symptoms of angina. And then it becomes important to talk about whether those symptoms are lifestyle limiting or can limit your quality of life. And that's, that's where we start talking about doing invasive procedures. So you mentioned the diabetic patient, which seems to be the more difficult patient to make decisions on. They typically don't have the classic uh, symptoms, and yet now there's some evidence that uh, angioplasty may not give the long-term benefits that bypass surgery uh, gives. Is there a particular approach you take to a diabetic patient in trying to decide which technique to use? Yeah, that's a very good question, I, and I think that for most interventionalists, we, we really take a diabetic patient on a case-by-case -case basis. However, that being said, the majority of interventionalists currently in a patient who has diabetes, who has multivessel disease or blockages in multiple arteries, or a patient who has a reduction in the pumping function of the left ventricle, or who has involvement of the left main coronary artery, the coronary artery that leads to the two-thirds of the blood supply of the front and left side of the heart, 
those clinical scenarios are ones in which routinely I would consider that patient as a first revascularization strategy to refer for bypass operation. Again, where it comes into play is to really talk about the other things that may make that patient a higher risk surgical candidate and also the wishes of that patient for what their revascularization should be. But I think that patients with diabetes, if they are a low operative risk and don't have other comorbidities, if they have multivessel disease or any of these other clinical parameters or angiographic parameters, my default really is to, is to refer that patient for a bypass operation currently. I want to thank Dr. Elizabeth Holper, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing percutaneous coronary interventions. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.